Hello and welcome to Next on WQLN. I'm your host, Marcus Atkinson. Thank you for tuning in today. If you get an opportunity, go to Facebook and like our page. If you also get an opportunity to follow us on Twitter, you can find us at 814 Next. Lend your voices to the dialogue. This is probably the most casual you've ever seen me dressed if you're watching the show. Uh, we want to have a casual conversation today. The normal prep that I do for a show didn't apply this time around. There was a sermon that I listened to on Sunday and one several weeks ago that I want to refer to to get this started. But I want to have an honest discussion with some of our brothers and sisters from the African-American community about some of the things within the community that we just need to deal with. Now, I want to take this a week at a time. Today is a very casual conversation with, again, some of our people of color from the neighborhood. Next time we, we meet on Next, I would like to convene some of our white brothers and sisters and talk about some of the, un, the unmentioned or the, 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 the things that never get addressed within that community and see if we can unpack that. Today, to help me have this conversation, though, I've got three very special guests. They are all listed as community advocates because they are at the highest level. Uh, one I've got uh, Pastor Daryl Craig. The other I have Mr. Maurice Troop. And then I have Tammy Johnson, who is joining us via Zoom. First of all, all of you, thank you for, for coming on the show today. <clears throat> thank you for having us, Mark. I want to start with, first, there was a sermon I listened to by Pastor Craig this past Sunday. And it, was, it was themed, we are not listening to each other. We are not listening to each other. And on part of that sermon, he mentioned that he used yard signs as an example. For some people, they see a Black Lives Matter yard sign and they think, you know what? Conversation over. I can't even listen to you if that's your position. Others may see a Trump sign in the yard. You know what? If that's how you feel, I can't even listen. Blue Lives Matter stickers. The list goes on and on. And he did a wonderful job t talking about the fact that we just aren't hearing each other. We are drawing such hard lines in community. And so as we dig our heels in, it dawns on me that there's a lot of conversation that needs to happen within these homogenous groups that are just poignant and people are trying to avoid it. And I feel like those conversations right now should be had within these pockets of these homogenous groups so that the greater conversation can have more context, more depth, and it can be more organic. And so I'll go to another sermon that Brother D gave and then I'll send it over to him. <clears throat> he talked about Black Lives Matter. And I'll never forget as I sat there in the front row, he talked about the relationship between law enforcement and the African-American community. He talked about the, the shootings of unarmed black men in community. And of course, uh, the church was amen and yes and preach it, pastor. And it was the, the normal cadence. And then at one point he pivots and says, but do black lives matter to us? Does it matter when it's us pulling the trigger on us? And it got quiet and he called it out. Oh, y'all got quiet on that. We need balance. I'm quoting him in church. And that really is the theme of this show. The three individuals that I bought on the show have all faced that very question. They all face that very question on a day to day basis within our community. But the catch is all three of these individuals to include myself are charged with the responsibility of reaching across the aisle, if you will, and saying, how can we come together? And so we all are in that situation where we kind of hear all sides of this. But today we want to deal with our community. And so, Brother D, I'll start with you. When you gave that sermon, talk about the mindset behind that with the notion of Black Lives Matter, but maybe not so much to us based upon the way we have perceived 
uh, through our actions. Well, for me, if, if you know me, um, I'm very deeply involved with the youth in our community through our efforts called the Blue Coats Initiative. And um, I watch on a daily basis all across this nation how our young people are dying and killing each other and being killed. And um, as we've been going through so much social unrest and, and all these different uh, things that have happened to us that have become prominent on our televisions and in our lives and in our conversations over the last couple of years. You know, the whole issue with police murdering unarmed black men and uh, that thing. But all the while, this thing with young black men continuing to murder young black men every day is still going on and it's still growing. And knowing full well that some of the pushback against us have been uh, saying Black Lives Matter has been, but police don't kill more people than, you know, more black guys than black people kill, all that stuff. And as I was standing on the pulpit uh, and looking out into the congregation, I got both of these narratives in my mind. And knowing that on a daily basis there's an expectation that at least 13 young black men will kill 13 other young black men every day 365 days a year in this country and we're in my heart are not making enough noise about that because if black life matters you said it when the police kill one of us how much more should it matter when we do it and continue to do it, and we're doing it with impunity. Just over the last two weeks, we lost a young, another young black man in his bed sleep. Where is the outrage, is all I'm saying. So I believe that only through a balanced approach do we even have the right to weigh in on any of these matters. Because otherwise, it's just one-sided, meaning we're walking with a limp. We're in denial on this side. And we're actually, to me, projecting off somewhat on the other side, even though the other side is valid. We always said when we were coming up, and I'm sure everybody under the sound of my voice have heard this, when you point your finger at somebody, you got four pointed back at you. Right. And that is so true in this instant here. I don't believe that we can, in a healthy manner, address what the police have been doing forever to us and not say anything about what we're doing to each other at the same time. Let me let, let, me let Mo in on this conversation, Mo, with your social media platform you actually have turned it into somewhat of a uh, survey platform. On a regular basis, you will offer the alternate view of a particular point of view and have people chime in on it. And it's one of the more popular feeds on social media, at least from what I've seen. So I can only imagine how many times you have chimed in on something along these lines. Give us your personal take on this conversation and what have you heard or seen from some of the uh, people you have personal conversation with and some people that post on your page. 
Um, Marcus, I, I agree with, I mean, I, I, <clears throat> to go along with kind of what my brother D was saying, um, you know, there's the, there's, there's the view of, you know, what the police are doing to the community. Then there's the view I hear, but what about, I always hear, what about Chicago? Or what about this? Or what about that? Right. But my, you know, another point I want to look at is that um, if we looked at it like a, a cup, okay, and we said, you know, black males killing black males, and the cup is this big, is this much of the cup? Okay, there's this much of the cup of black males that aren't killing each other. Mm. So I think, you know, to say that blacks don't care about each other is a false statement because you have another eight tenths of a cup that aren't killing each other. Okay. And that's not, that's not what's highlighted. We, we're, we're focusing on, and, and I think as a community also, um, I think as, as a black community, um, if, we, if we really want this issue to stop of, let's say, blacks killing each other, for example, I think as a black community, we have to uh, decide, like, you know, those who do harm to our community, regardless of who they are, we can't really necessarily feel sorry for them. I'm going there. That, that's a good point. You know right. what I'm saying? Yep. So if we want to, if we want to, if I got, if I got a lawn, and I know that there's a bug in my grass that's killing my lawn, I can't feel sorry for the bug. I just say, hey, I, I value my lawn so much mm -hmm. that I'm going to do something to rid my lawn of this bug. You know what I mean? Because, and that's how we have to look at it. I know, you know, we might feel sorry and this and that, but hey, if you do something that harms our community, we have to, we have to do something to remove that from our community. And, you know, they, that person or whoever, whatever does that deserves consequences. Mm -hmm. Tammy, let's get you in on this conversation. Give us your take on what you're hearing so far. I, I do agree that, that uh, we have to hold those accountable um, on all um, lines of action that take the innocent lives of our young people and people, black people of color, as well as uh, people of color that are not black. But I think Mo's point of feeling sorry um, for those that do this is, is key too. I think we start, we feel sorry because of where folks might come from. There might be a similarity to us. And being a woman on the panel, I will address, bring this issue up. And it often gets blamed on the fact that a lot of young men and women are raised in single um, parent households, prior, primarily female households. Um, but I'm here to say that, that a couple on this, right here that we're having this conversation pushes back to that conversation about uh, there's no real leadership in the household of um, single parent households. And there's no uh, learning of the value system of life in a single parent household. Mm. And I would argue um, that that just isn't true. In fact, I think that a lot more responsibility is taught in uh, single parent household for other individuals in the household that are less um, able than you until you move on through the process. So I, I like to put that point out there. Mm -hmm. So let me, go, let me go back to something that Mo said a second ago because I think it's a great segue. You know, a few years ago, there's an organization that was started called the Detroit 300. I don't know if any of you are familiar with them at all. But the Detroit 300 was a group of 300 men who literally 
made the decision to take their neighborhoods back. They wanted to clear out prostitution. They wanted to clear out dope dealing. They wanted to find you know, people that were abducted and everything else. And, and at the end of the day, one of their mantras was, why would we give safe haven to people poisoning and killing our own neighborhood? Right, so I wanna go back to Mo's point because I think that as, as we look at some of our neighborhoods, and I don't care if it's here, Chicago, Atlanta, Detroit, or what have you, even now you can ride through the neighborhood. Mo brought up an excellent point about the lawn analogy. Whether it's kids shooting dice out front, you know, people hustling in front of our kids, people taking shots at each other in front of our kids. Like, at what point do you say, okay, we all look the same, but is that justification for me tolerating this in our own neighborhood, in our own backyard? Brother D, speak to that, please. Yeah, and I need to make my position abundantly clear here. I am not pro-police, I am not anti-police. I've been beaten by police. I've been robbed by a police at gunpoint. Robbed by a police officer. So I am not saying that we don't address that. But the charge God has given to my life has to been to reach into my people and say we better than this and we have to survive this and the only way we can survive this is to stop killing each other. So when you say, uh, uh, um, speak to this um, thing, I'm very adamant about how dare we let somebody fire off gunshots in our communities and shooting through houses where babies live and bringing guns to playgrounds and, you know, how dare we stand silent while this happens to us every day, all day. And you're right, the reason why we don't want to speak on it, because nine times out of ten, we know the individuals. We're related to some of these individuals. We know that this is our friend's son or our friend's daughter. And so we have this whole, uh, uh, this, this, this thing where we feel trapped when it comes to speaking out against it. You know, because if I speak out against it, I'm going to ostracize or I'm going to break a relationship or as the sister spoke, I know that this kid is doing some bad stuff, but he come from some horrible circumstances with all of that going on. It's kind of tough to make a decision to stand and, and, and say something. But at the end of the day, the more silent we are, the more people that die. The more silent we are, the more jail cells get filled up. The more silent we are, the larger it grows. Mm -hmm. The larger it grows. And so at some point, whether we like it or not, we are going to have to face the hard, cold fact that there's some work in our community that has to be done if we're going to have the beloved community that all of us desire. Even the thug don't want his house shot up. Right. He don't want this, where his little brother, his baby sister is crawling around on the floor. We had a situation where I think it was a five-month-old baby got hit <clears throat> over on Walnut Street. Not one peep from the community. Six-year-old girl got shot in the holly. Not one peep. And so when they push back against us about Black Lives Matter, we set that narrative up by our complicity. 
by us not saying nothing. And that's what I'm saying. We set the pushback up by seemingly to prove them right by being silent when we absolutely should. Mm. Now, at any point in this conversation, I'll start with certain people, but if you want to chime in on something, just shoot me a nod or what have you, because again, I want this to be a conversation. You don't have to wait. Let me know if you want to get in on this, because I want to bounce around on a couple of things on this topic within this hour that we have. You know, I want to go to acceptance. You'll notice from a political standpoint, somebody said that, you know, we talked about Kamala Harris and somebody made the statement of, actually, somebody was Dr. King. This was in the 60s. Dr. King said, I'm tired of, of all of these firsts, first African-American this, first African-American that. When is it going to be the fifth or the sixth or the seventh or the eighth? We're in 2021 and we're still talking about the first black this, the first black that. So, Tammy, I'll start with you on this one. Are we too enamored with acceptance as opposed to creating certain realities for ourselves? That's a good question. I think that um, I don't know whether we are enamored with it. I know that it has become part of our narrative that that is what's going on. Um, It's been part of our narrative that um, we have to strive for. But as we have noticed in this last two years through all the uh, violence that nationally has gotten uh, uh, press. These things have happened and occurred before. We're always looking at at what the narrative is put before us, opposed to what the true narrative might be. Um, we have been in places where we have had leadership. We have taken ownership for. Uh, our communities. We have taken uh, responsibility for ourselves. Um, So to kind of say that we haven't is disingenuous because we have. The problem is that we've fallen off because of the ideas that have been put out there, in my opinion, post uh, the 60s that because of this or because of that, someone cannot overcome or someone cannot achieve. Where I would say because of this and because of that, that that person is going to achieve Mm -hmm. and can achieve because they already understand what lack of is. And so they can achieve um, the benefits of personal satisfaction of gaining um, what we call self-resiliency, you know, in this community today. So I don't know that I agree that they're enamored with the first of. I don't think that the first is the problem. I think that the problem is us not saying that we are already here. We don't need your acknowledgement. I think we're always looking for acknowledgement, right? And we don't need that. Most speak to that. Is is there an obsession or an undue amount of attention or concern with being accepted? into the white community as opposed to us building and creating our own narrative? Um, I mean, from a, from a personal standpoint, I mean, most people know that uh, in Erie, I've been able to build a, a successful band, okay? And, and a lot of the older black members of our community who were in music, some of them actually told me like, ah, oh, that'll never work. An all black band will never work. That'll mm-hmm. never work. Mm-hmm. Your band's gotta be half white, half black, blah, blah, blah. 
And I didn't really believe that. I believe that if we put a product out there that looks good, it sounds good, we know how to conduct ourselves in various situations, mm. that the product will be such that people won't be able to resist it, won't be able to right. deny it. Like, you know what I mean? So, and I didn't, you know, and, and, I, and on the other side of that, I do realize that I've been able to build relationships with the white community, with members of the white community who say, hey, Mo, I like, I really like you guys, man. Right. And, and got to know them over the years personally. And you know what? I'm going into that business over there and I'm going to speak for you. Right. I'm going to speak for you so that you can get in there. And you, you know what I mean? Because we like you. We want to see you in this venue. So, I mean, I think we have to, you know, one of the things is I think we need real, like, real, real interaction with each other. Like, like one of, one of my good friends that I, I had an office, shared an office with, um, you know, when we first were together, we, we, we argued a lot. He was, he was a white guy, I was a black guy. But then after we got through all this arguing and, and loud talking, we found out, man, you grew up on peanut butter and jelly just like I did. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? So like, and now we have a good relationship. So, mm -hmm. so I think, you know, I think it was Booker T. Washington that says something like, if we put a product on the table that's so good, the community won't be able to deny that product. And mm -hmm. I think we have to get to that point as black people that we're offering, we're, we're such, not, not, not like we're, we're, we're out to get acceptance but create that, polish that product mm -hmm. to the point where, hey, I'm such a good bricklayer. I'm such a good construction worker. I'm such a good nurse that, man, we can't live without those skills. Right, right. I think that's a great segue to Brother D because Brother D, you have uh, a ministry or an organization that addresses a lot of community need, the Blue Coats. And they, or you organized, and the whole objective was to fulfill this mandate that you talked about earlier. So you organize and you did that to kind of go with Mo's point. You were just true to the mission and your blue coats are just true to the mission. And along the way, because the mission was true, because the mission was pure, you've got a lot of allies and supporters outside of the black community, but it's right motive, you know, right, right way of going about it. Speak to the need for us to, again, piggyback, piggyback off Mo's point, to identify the issue with issues with our community organize and address them ourselves. Absolutely. Uh, and it kind of ties into what the uh, sister said. She's absolutely right. There is a false narrative that we have not taken ownership in our community. And that right there lends to what you just said, the need for us to do more of that, you know. But the thing is, we don't celebrate it enough. Mm. We don't celebrate the fact that Mo has probably made history on so many other levels because of the longevity of what he's done and how he came from where he came to get where he's at. Even with the Blue Coats and never to toot our own horn, but uh, the Blue Coats have made history on so many fronts that it, it's not even worth listing now, you know what I mean? Because we're beyond the point of being acknowledged, you know, and we didn't do it for that in the first place. But you're absolutely right. That's what I'm saying about this whole issue of what we do to each other. We do need to get back to, as our sister said, back in the 60s, and you just uh, mentioned it, the Detroit 300, there was a time when we would address what was going on in our uh, community. Mm -hmm. Somebody getting killed in our community or shooting somebody in our community, that would be a conversation for almost a year. 
you know, it was so unheard of, you know, and there were adults and there were leaders and there were people in the community that would step up and address that issue and address that thing. And so one th place we need to start with that is that we need to have more of these type of conversations where we get with us and talk about us. Right. That needs to happen more often because this is where we get to find out that, you know, there's a lot of commonality, you know, that just because Mo is concentrated on education does not mean he's not concerned with the violence. Right. You know, we have a bad habit of thinking that, okay, well, he's not political enough, you know, and he is not out backing this candidate or backing this issue, so he's not engaged. But it could be that his hands are so full with the assignment that he does have right. that because he's holding back the title, he makes it possible for you to be able to focus on that. But if we're not having these conversations and we're not engaging each other, there's no opportunity first to organize. Okay. And then we have a lot of misconceptions about ourselves that are being uh, perpetrated for lack of knowledge, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tammy, uh, chime in on that for us. That I, I, I just wanted, wanted to say that you brought in the Bible and you were speaking of assignment. Um, I think that's one of the things that we really don't speak enough about in our community any, anymore. We don't speak about how there are God-given gifts to us and God-given rights to us that are out there before we ever even breathe our first breath, <laughs> they're for us. And you know, that that gift that, that Mo has of being a leader and a band leader. Um, I think it's Joe Madison who says that we uh, marginal we are marginalized, underestimated, and um, uh, undervalued and as a people. And I think that it's said so much, you know, more agree with this. The reason why uh, teachers repeat things is so that it's held on. Mm -hmm. Well, because we have been marginalized and we've been placed in the margins and because we've been underestimated, so we don't get the raises or we don't get the loans or we don't get the whatevers that are out there that uh, make for longevity wealth um, that causes us to be underestimated as well. So we can't even get sometimes pittance of those things. So I feel like that that has become like an identity factor that we wear like a t-shirt, that they're not giving it to us, that they're against us, that they're, and it's like a us and a them all the time when there isn't that, that idea that we are all humans and children of God, see? And I think that that part of it is where we lose things. And the, and to take it back even a little bit further, you know, understanding that, you know, that I think it was in the 70s when we talk about the crime bill and what was done. Well, the whole Black caucus was on for that. And the reason why they were on for that is because so many Black people were dying at the hands of Black people. Just because things are misused doesn't mean that the intent was wrong. What we have to do now is try to figure out how to get the intent and the actions 
to be synonymous with each other. Mm -hmm. And so that we can make sure that those who are arrested are the right ones that are doing these violent crimes and that we are holding our community leaders accountable to us. Mm -hmm. I think those, I know I, I bridged off a little bit, but I wanted to wrap that all up together Absolutely. because it's really important when we're talking about us being placed in the margins and getting out of that margins, getting out of the ruts that are set on the sides. Tammy, you touched on education and I wanna go there because I know that I've, uh, these two gentlemen have been heavily involved with education. I've been heavily involved with the, the, the Erie Public School District, uh, Erie Public School System extensively as well. I remember Tavis Smiley talking about uh, parents and teachers. And he talked about a, a conversation he had with a parent and she talked about how much she couldn't stand his teacher, yada, 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 yada. And it didn't sound particularly crazy about white women teaching. And Tavis Smiley made the point that, you know, you look at whether it's second, third grade reading scores, we always point to the prison industrial complex and how they're looking at reading scores to determine how many prisons they build, so on and so forth. If the overwhelming majority of teachers in an elementary school level, and Mo, I'm coming to you next with this, if the overwhelming majority of those teachers are white women, he said, I question the wisdom of going to war with white women if we're trying to save our sons because they have to be a part of that war. We have to work together. And so there's that narrative. There's the narrative of how much we are or are not valuing the educations that we're given. Mo, you, this is your wheelhouse, education. Give me your vantage point on that. Give me what you're hearing and seeing from parents and neighborhood people. Give us a state of education when it comes to African-Americans from your personal experience. Well, I mean, a couple of things. If we look at, if we, if we look at, let's go back to the, let's go back to the police issue with, with black males. So if all you see on TV, if all you hear in the neighborhood is that white man is going to, anytime you see him on TV, a black, a white officer has a black guy on the ground with a gun to his head, choking him, killing him. Um, and then that's all you see growing up. And then when you go, so you learn that to not trust, not trust this person's out to get me. This person's, you know, he's a, he's a cop, he's whatever it is. And then you go to school and the people that you have to learn from that are going to be the, the teachers are white. That kind of puts a, you know what I mean? So it's hard to learn. Um, it's, it's hard to learn from somebody who you don't trust. So, um, so that puts the kid at a, at, a, at a disadvantage, and also puts the teacher who might not be that police officer right. that they're thinking about. Right. But now they got to deal with breaking down this wall mm -hmm. that's created by media, by 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 the, by the neighborhood you live in, by the culture, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, another situation. Um, that I, I believe hopelessness is a is something that's really that that is really um, in our community. Yes. Okay. People have learned to stop jumping. They've learned to that our box, you know, my box is only this big. I'm right. not going to jump. You've made some good points about that. Keep going. Okay. With your thought, brother. So um, one year in, I was teaching a fifth grade class, and during Black History Month, um, you know, I talk Black History all year, but during the month I really specialize in it. So I said, look, guys, I'm going to teach you about 60 people that you never learned about. Not Martin Luther King, mm -hmm. not Rosa Parks, mm -hmm. not George Washington Carver, not the three or four you always hear about. I'm going to teach you about 60 different inventors, scientists, doctors, lawyers, and some athletes, too, because we're not just athletes. And at the end of the month, now, now I had never seen kids. I'm talking about the, 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 the kid who gave me the most trouble in, in class. He grabbed a notebook out. Man, 
I can't wait to take this home and show my mother that what we learning here today. And man, I, I'm, I'm bringing me a notebook for the rest of the month. I want to take these notes, you know. And so at the end of the month, I asked him, I said, uh, have a conversation with the kids. I say, does any of this surprise you? And one little fifth grade girl who was at Erie High when I, when I became an assistant principal at Erie High, she said, Mr. Troop, I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this, but she says, man, it surprised me because I never thought black people did anything. And this is from a black girl. Yes. She said, I thought white people did everything in this mm -hmm. world. And then a little white boy who, little white male student who wanted to go in the military, learned about Garrett A. Morgan, who invented the gas mask. Mm -hmm. And he was enamored by that. And he said, wow, Mr. Troop, I'm learning that black people actually can be smart. So to, you know, a girl growing up who, black girl growing up, if she had never had that experience, her, her, her thought on black people was that we were just crooks. We were, we did what, what she saw, what she saw and heard. Mm. And, the, and, the, and the little white guy thought, y'all not smart, y'all not intelligent, you're criminals. So that, 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 that experience of learning that part of history mm -hmm. that they probably maybe not got anywhere else, that just opened their eyes up to a whole new, you know what I mean? Brother D, you deal with parents and kids all the time as well. Give us your take on this, you know, our, our, our journey with education. You know, are we taking advantage of it to the extent that we should? What are the barriers? Give me your thoughts on this. Absolutely. Um, as I sit here and I listen to Mo, um, uh, Sister Tammy said something that kind of triggered me when she talked about we are child, children of God. And you know, I'm big on preaching that our true identity, you know, has to come to the forefront as opposed to the false narratives that have been published about us. Mm -hmm. Now, when you look at the education system, um, Mo just made, gave us two dynamics of uh, false thought that exists in both black and white, right? And why is that? You know, for a lot of people, they think all we were were slaves. So you don't have any history of what we were and what we were like and capable before slavery. And then here's where the big impact was made. Coming out of slavery, coming out of slavery, black people prospered, mm -hmm. prospered immensely. You've heard me say this from the pulpit, how we were powerhouses in the agriculture game and, and because we were the ones that did the actual work. And so when I'm dealing with parents and, and, and children and I'm in houses sometimes, it really bothers me how limited, because we have so many young parents now, how limited the information the parent that I'm dealing with has in order to motivate their child. Excellent point. Because they've been done this disservice and they don't actually know where to reach to give an example for their child that's outside of the four norms that uh, uh, Brother Mo talked about. And then there's this other thing that, as Sister Tammy alluded to, that is horribly missing from the conversations we have with our children. And that is that you are the child of God. You have been born with greatness in you. You are destined for great things if you choose that. And our parents not being equipped with the right information to give to the child, to motivate that child, that they come to the school that no matter what's stacked up against me, I'm so incredible. I'm so 
excellent on the inside and I have so much destiny and potential in me. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter what they think. I am in control of how far I excel. Mm -hmm. And we have to get back to teaching that to our kids. Failure wasn't an option. It did not matter what kind of racism was in the world as I was uh, being um, raised. Our parents demanded excellence from me. Right. My parents demanded that I overcome the obstacles of the world, the racism, the uh, 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 me not be given opportunity, create an opportunity. There's the point. There's the point. Create an opportunity. Create an opportunity. And so, you know, it, it's painfully uh, obvious that there, there was some, I don't know if you want to call it watering down, diluting, or just absence of uh, quality information given to a lot of these young parents at an early enough age, yep. you know what I mean? Because a lot of these parents didn't graduate high school or didn't make it all the way through high school that I deal with sometimes. But I mean, from the time that we come to kindergarten, this is when they started to teach us about the great people of the world and mm -hmm. history and all these, these stories we hear, story time. Yeah. But if those story time was more about some of the people that Mo mentioned in kindergarten, right. no matter what happens to this child, if the seed is planted early enough, it will take root mm -hmm. and eventually it will bloom and bear some type of fruit. But normally these kids don't get to find that out until they get to a point where they can research on their own. Amen. Let me bring Tammy into this because Brother D brings up some powerful points. I don't care if you're talking about Black Wall Street. When I talk about Erie's version, we're talking about the original Black Wall Street that thrived economically. And it, it, one, of the, one of the historians talked about it was very, very common in Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where from sun up to sundown, a dollar would exchange hands 30, 40 times, and all of it would be within the black community. And all these businesses thrived. I don't care if you're talking about that. Auburn Avenue, you had generations of black people flourishing when America was publicly, overtly racist, right? And yet here we are today. And so, Tammy, in, in your mind, what's going on? Because at some point, something did begin to go a different direction, right? It's as if that's a, a, a chapter that we've even forgotten that we're capable of. Speak to what Brother D was talking about. I think it's really simple. It's so simple that I think sometimes that it, it, it bypasses us as a culture as African people, um, we lived as a collective. Mm -hmm. We lived that all of us did things together. Uh, Brother D was talking about um, the agricultural game. The reason why we were good at the agricultural game is because when they went to Africa to take us from Africa, they went to the tribes that were good at that game. They were already uh, in the agricultural game. So when we came here, they were um, able to utilize the ground and the works. That's why everything grew from potatoes to rice, to cotton, to, <laughs> to beans, to, to, to beef. To, we knew how to get what the nutrients out of the ground and we turned everything around and we did it through community the way we did it back in Africa. So once slavery was over, it was only natural that we 
maintained our collective. First of all, we weren't allowed to go to several different places. Um, so we went to, then Tulsa was actually um, Indian land. So we went to Indian land to begin to do what we needed to do as a collective. And that collective point, um, we still had that, I believe, all the way up to arguably uh, desegregation. Some argued that desegregation was the downfall of us as a collective because we no longer looked within, we started to look outside, like the Green Book no longer existed. There were black businesses that thrived off of the Green Book. Now I think there's somewhere like maybe 10% of the black businesses that were in business they were advertised in the Green Book even exist today. There's about 10% of or less of African American farmers who are out there um, today. There's a lot of research currently being done on African American farmers. Um, so there's, I really believe that it's the lack of us looking at, to Brother D's point, holding each other accountable as a collective. Mm. So Mo, you have one of the the thing that, that I'm most proud of with your band, with your musical career, is that you draw everybody. You wanna see black people, white people, all kinds of people getting together for a good time. Book Mo's man, and that's not an endorsement, but it's become common knowledge that it brings all of these different people together. And so on the one hand, I know we complain as black folks that we don't support each other's businesses. Well, you have, you've established something that flies in the face of that. But I do wanna go to, in this short amount of time, I want to look at the Nation of Islam model. We're not talking about <clears throat> the religious ideology. But in the United States, from an African-American perspective, the Nation of Islam has established some things on multiple levels that I think serves as an example that we can learn from self-sufficiency, controlling their own narrative, securing it, I mean, policing their own people, educating their own people. So it, it's, it's odd to me that on the one hand, outside of the nation, we seem to be dealing with all of these issues that within the nation, they have figured out ways to not only mitigate, but to come together, as Tammy pointed out, in that collective and thrive economically, spiritually. Most speak to that, and then I want to segue to Brother D on that. Well, I always, you know, one of the things I always say is that um, as, as black people, we, we exist in the, like in the Erie community, for example. And their Erie community has laws and things that you have to follow. But within the Erie community, black people, like as blacks, we need our own standard too. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like Erie says we have to wear our socks here. But as black people, this is how we know in the black community right. we need to wear our socks. What's your so, standard? So we're gonna follow the community standard, but we also have our own standard. So I think that's one of the things that um, we have to develop again is that what's our community standard within within that standard excellent you know what i mean um a, a, a fifth grade student told me once she was she was from iraq and we got to talking one day and, and she was telling me that um she said mr troop we go to school on saturdays and i said well why do you go to school on saturdays and she said because we can't rely on american schools to teach our culture and so my thing is like kind of like what you're saying the nation of islam the, the Middle Eastern culture, the, the, the Jewish culture, you know, they go to school on Saturdays. You know, uh, one of the things I've learned about music is, hey, if I see a band that's doing really well, I'm gonna go check that band out to right. see what I can, what can I learn from this other band? Right. So the same thing is if I see a culture that's thriving, if I see the Nation of Islam is thriving or, or this certain culture, 
let me go check that out for a minute right. to see what I can use in my own culture that could make us better too. Right, brother, do you speak to that please? You know, um, once again, um, Sister Tammy with these buzzwords, she said something about the collective and going within to the collective for the needs, you know, and how we prospered doing that back in the times of Tulsa and that. And you know, I don't know if you remember Marcus, but you've heard me continue to preach to our people that in order to find out who they truly are, they must go within. Right. They must go within themselves and make that contact with the spark of the divine that resides on the inside that they could hear from him about who they is and realize and actualize what that means to be a child of God. For real, for real. Well, so as it is on the spiritual world, there's types and shadows of it in the natural world. And I say exactly what Sisters Tammy said. Until we collectively go within and learn to rely and support one another, to rely on one another and support one another, we're going to continue to go without. It's a must. It should be a mandate for each and every awakened soul that resides in our community. The only guaranteed path to success is unity. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to take us to church or anything, but in the Bible, in the Bible, there's only one place that God ever commanded a blessing. And that's in Psalms 133, how sweet and pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. Going on down to the third verse, it says, there the Lord has commanded a blessing. So we know that in unification, there's a fixed, established blessing for us that cannot even be avoided. We can't miss this blessing if we even reject it. We can't even reject the blessing. So in our going within to the collective, I think that's where our path to uh, normalcy lies. We must get back to that. We must get back to that. We must get back to being community and being brother, being sister. Because they meant that. When they said that back in the 60s, they meant that. Right. When they called you brother, they meant that. When they called you sister, they meant that. And it wasn't just some trendy, you know, phrase that, or, or word to say. And, and we need to get back to that. Mo, I see you want to add something. And then Tammy, we'll come back to you. So, you know, another one of my backgrounds is a athletic background. So I had a nice athletic career. And um, I've been on some winning teams and I've been on some losing teams. And, 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 and make two points here. So all of us have a favorite football team that we like. So maybe you like the Pittsburgh Steelers. I don't know. Or maybe you like the Cleveland Browns or Buffalo Bills. But you, you know if you like the Buffalo Bills, Buffalo has to be a team first. Okay, if they're going to go play in Pittsburgh, they already know when they go to Pittsburgh. The fans are against them. The teams are against them. The weather might be against them. Whatever's in, the outside factors. But that team has to be a team. Okay, and everybody on that team has to be together. So if that team, that, that team isn't together, if they're fighting each other, then they definitely can't go face the other team. They definitely can't f- face the, you know what I mean? Because, so this team has to be tight before they be able to go on the road or to deal with the outside factors. If there's fight, I think it was Mark, Marcus Garvey who said, uh, as long as you guys re- remain divided, you always remain easily penetrated, easily defeated. So, I mean, um, 
Another thing is all the winning teams that I've ever been a part of, whether it was musically, athletically, uh, in a group in school, whatever it was, um, we, all had, we all had to get to the point where we didn't care like who scored the touchdown, who had the most yards today. The only thing we, when we won, we, we said all we care about at the end of the day is a W. Right. Now I was the quarterback. There were some days where I might throw three touchdown passes. There were some days where I might not throw any. Early on in my career, I might be complaining, man, I didn't throw no touchdowns today. Uh, why did he get the ball so much? But when we won, that's when we decided, you know what, none of that matters. The only thing that matters is we get the W at the end of the day. Mm. Tammy, and, and you two give this some thought as well as we segue towards the, the finish line. What strengths within the community should we be focusing in on in order to move the ball, to stay with Mo's analogy, in order to move the ball within the community? Because he's right, I love what he said about what's the community standard. We know what the laws are. We know what, the, what Erie's standard is, but within the community, what's the standard that we're setting? What strengths should we be relying on and what things should we be taking advantage of in order to move this thing forward? You two give that some thought as well. I think, I think that we have a strength here that it goes very, very uh, neglected. We have a lot of young people who are college educated, who are um, good with their hands and have great business heads. We have young folks that can fix anything from, you know, a vacuum cleaner to an engine. You know, we, we have that in our community. I feel that that's our key. I feel like we, we're not lifting our young people up enough by modeling that ourselves. You know, that whole idea of businesses. How many real legit businesses do we have here that we, even dealerships, we don't have uh, a legit Chrysler dealership or a legit Ford dealership. You know, those things are some of the things that are going on in Atlanta. Those are some of the things that are go on in Baltimore. When I was a kid growing up, you know, it's, it's argued here that I'm the first female qualified firefighter in Erie. I don't know whether that's true. That goes back to what you were saying about first. I don't care. The bottom line is I was doing a job and I was doing it well. Right. And I think that that vision and having folks see firefighters and EMTs and teachers and lawyers and all those things so that they can become that without having to leave area. I think that's the key and the thing that we don't um, bring back enough to our schools, to our classrooms, um, to our community centers for these young people to actually see people doing the job that are perhaps family members that have moved away that they might not even know. Mm -hmm. Brother D, some of the, the things that we might want to focus on, some of our strengths in the community. I hesitate, hesitantly say this. I would immediately say our churches. I would immediately say our churches because these institutions, we have several of them, that everybody knows a story about that church. Every family has some sort of interaction with that church, right? And there's enough of these churches that if we ever, ever could bring them all together under one voice, absent the, uh, uh, the, the feeling of who scored the touchdown, 
oh my God, I believe that we could change our community overnight with a sincere, intentional effort by a united church coming together as an example for the rest of our community. That's the strength, that's the major strength we have and I believe that's where our victory is at. Mm. Mo, speak to that please. I'm gonna go back to my athletic background. Um, we all know offensive football, the main objective is to string together a series of first downs. So the objective is to get one first down, 10 yards. We're not gonna worry about the touchdown yet. So 10 yards, we need three plays of three and a half yards. So the black community has to learn how to consistently together just get three and a half yards. Mm -hmm. If we can get three and a half yards, three and a half yards, three and a half yards, first down, line up again, do it again. You keep stringing that together, that's going to turn into a touchdown. I also think we got to, our strengths are we have some of our senior folks who are, who've been, been across the road a thousand times. They have all this knowledge. We have 25 year olds who got all this energy, but they might not have all the knowledge. And we have some of us in the middle. We got, we got to bring all that together. Mm -hmm. Our people are our strength. The people that we have, our energy, our, our creativity, our drive, our, our, our young people now are, are, are young people who are saying, man, look, I'll get up and start a business. I, I don't, I'm, I'll go start something. You know what I mean? So I think, I think our, our strength is, is our people itself. Mm -hmm. And we just have to come together and believe that, hey, let's, let's figure out a way to get three and a half yards at one time together mm -hmm. and then hull up again and do it again. Forget about the 80-yard bomb. Let's get four yards of play mm -hmm. until we get to that touchdown together. We had one of our village elders, if you will, on the show not too long ago, Gary Horton, and I'll represent something that he said uh, maybe about a year or so ago, and he would mention this in a lot of meetings. He said, if you look around Erie, some of the most influential African-Americans in Erie have occupational positions, have positions in community, have deep and strong relationships in the community, economically, politically, and so on and so forth. He said, but what makes that so unique is a lot of these people if not all of them, are from Erie. Like we have a robust group of people in Erie with legitimate influence in various areas that have deep, deep ties to the city. That coupled with the fact that when you look at each different portion of the village, to most point, we have a strong group of village elders, knowledgeable, accomplished, we have a strong group of village adults, if you will. And the 20-something and 30-somethings that oftentimes, unfortunately, are disenfranchised or disengaged or not plugged in, they're strong. And as Tammy pointed out earlier, sister's absolutely right. We've got some strong, tough children who have gifts, talents, and instincts that are underdeveloped. And we need to take advantage of that. And so I want to go to parting shots. Uh, one minute or so, Tammy, wrap this conversation up from your vantage point. Give us something for people to think about on their way out the door. I'll swing it to you two as well, and we'll take this thing home. I'd like to go to something that uh, both my brethren have said today in different ways. And um, to me, it truly is the key to all of this. I think Brother D summed it up and started it this way. And I think that Mo was trying to say it too. I know that our um, mentor, uh, Ms. Mary Brown used to say it to us. You have to 
quiet down and listen to each other. Turn down the volume and turn up the listening so that you can hear each other, so that you can be on time and rhythm with each other so that you can move through. And I think in community, that's exactly what we need to do. We need to turn down the noise, listen to what's really being said, increase our active listening communication skills in order for us to move forward in that uh, united front, no matter what that would be, but specifically in our black community. Mo, I'm gonna send it back to you and then we'll close it out with Brother D. What, what do you want people to consider and think about when this topic is, where this topic is concerned? Um, I'm a, two things, because um, I, I, we have Brother D sitting there and I know he's, he's a pastor. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of the instance where Jesus uh, actually got on his hands and knees and washed Wash the lady's feet. So I think uh, not being afraid to serve, no matter what your position is, serve your brother and sister. Okay. Um, also, um, musically, one of the things I've seen amongst black musicians is um, inability to say sorry to each other. Mm-hmm. And so because they won't say sorry, they just say, man, I ain't going to work with you no more. Right. So now you have two guys, two people, two, a man and a woman, or, or two guys, one has the bat and one has the ball. Because they can't forgive, now they don't work with each other anymore. That's so now nobody's playing point. the game. That's a you know what I mean? So, so, so picking up the phone and just saying, hey, Marcus, I'm sorry, man. What I said yesterday and what you said, and then you call me and do the same thing. Amen. And let's move on and keep making this money together. Right. So forgiveness. Brother D, take us home. Hey, man, I, I don't even want to convolute it uh, by trying to add anything to it. I think that the both of them spoke my heart, uh, specifically Sister Tammy, since you well know that she just summarized my sermon she from yesterday. Did. Confirmation. You know, <laughs> and so I'll just leave it there that we really need to listen. We need to listen. We need to listen to our hearts. We need to listen to each other. And we need to even listen to those who are so drastically different to us. I think we just need to get back to learning the fine art of listening. And as Mo said, not be afraid to humble ourselves to one another and make those amends when, when, um, when we can, you know. If I've offended anybody, I'll start the ball today. Anybody that's watching this, if I've offended you or have ever done anything that made you feel any kind of way. If you even hear about this, knowing in my heart that I mean you no harm, uh, I just want to be the best brother that I can be. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Marcus Atkinson with WQLN. Hopefully you found this this show enjoyable. Hopefully you learned something, uh, be it black or white. We wanted to, again, bring you a candid conversation This genuinely is the type of conversation that ensues when I'm in the room with not just these people, but people like ourselves. It's conversation that we have over a cup of coffee, over a glass of wine, over a beer, because it's ever present on our minds. And we wanted to give you kind of a glance into a glimpse into what that looks like and sounds like. And so tune in next time. We'll try to approach this from a different vantage point because we want to peel back the layers of the onion internally within various groups so that we can come together with some of these truths in mind and try to have real, real dialogue. Marcus Atkinson, thank you for listening. Again, if you get an opportunity to go to Facebook, go to Twitter, lend your voices to the dialogue. Tune in next time when we'll have a different topic, different guests, always something timely to the local and national community. You can catch our show on audio on 91.3 FM every fourth Sunday of the month at 4 p.m. For WQLN NPR, Marcus Atkinson, we will see you next time.